Well, today we're going to continue in our Christmas series that we have titled, Why the Nativity? And we're just going to go ahead and get right into the scripture, our scripture reference. So I'd like you to turn your Bibles, if you have one, to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be reading together verses 18 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. It'll be up on the screens and you can follow along with us. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Uh, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. The scriptures say, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name of Jesus. Fellas, could you give me the light above? I'd appreciate it. You know, just like here at High Point, where we move immediately from Thanksgiving right into the Christmas season. You show up the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we got this place decorated for Christmas. We do the same thing at the Blythe House. Lisa and I start decorating our house the day after Thanksgiving. And since we have been celebrating Christmas together as husband and wife for, for 25 years, we have accumulated far more decorations than we can actually use. But out of all the Christmas decorations that we have, there is one that is very, very special to us. And it's a, it's a nativity set. We've had it forever. It's become like a piece of history of our relationship together. We still have the original box it came in, and we carefully wrap it up every year when we're done for safe keep, keep, safekeeping for next year's Christmas. Well, two Christmases ago, while I was vacuuming, yes, I do vacuum, gentlemen. Uh, it's, it's okay. You can do it too. Um, <laughs> And all the ladies said amen, right? <laughs> the cord got caught up on something and, I'm, and I flung it and guess where it went? It caught the wing off of our angel on our nativity and it sent it to the floor. And the crash caused it to break into a lot of pieces. The wing, the wing was broken off of it. And because it's porcelain, we, we tried our best to get all the broken pieces together and glue them as best we could, but it looks rough. Uh, thankfully, from a distance, it still looks somewhat normal, but if you were to get up on it and take a close look, you'll see that it's been through a real battle. And every time I think about that day, I get, I get sad, and thankfully, Lisa has been so kind. She's never once said a harsh word about it, but I'm sure it even bothers her a little bit, too. Now, there are many reasons that we love that nativity set, and I, but I believe the main reason is because it so simply and vividly tells the story of Jesus' birth. 
It is a, it is a visual reminder of the true reason for the season. The arrival of our Savior, who has literally transformed her and my life personally, and who is also the, the one responsible for bringing the two of us together in the first place. Now, I've seen more grandiose uh, nativity sets with much greater detail. In fact, some of them have such great detail, you'd think that uh, Michelangelo carved them himself. I've also seen life-size ones, and I've seen inflatable versions of nativity scenes. But I've come to realize that a nativity set does not need to be big or greatly detailed in order to tell the story of Christ's birth. In truth, to fit the definition of the nativity, all you really need is three people. Of course, you need Jesus. But the other two that you must have is Mary and Joseph. Sure, it's nice to have some shepherds and some sheep and some donkeys and some cows. It's great to have some wise men and camels. It's, it's always beautiful to have an angel or, or two. But really, in the whole scheme of things, they aren't at all essential. In order to tell the Messiah's coming, the story of his coming, other than that babe in the manger, all you really need is Mary and Joseph. Well, at Christmas, here at High Point this year, we've been trying to better understand the significance of the nativity by answering some questions. And today's question that we're gonna deal with is why did Jesus come to the people he did? Or, or to really be more specific, why do you find these two people, Mary and Joseph, in every nativity, and what is it about Mary and Joseph that made them so usable by our God? Well, I think to better, better help understand the answer to those questions, we must begin by reviewing the setting of the Christmas story, as well as Mary and Joseph, these two key figures in the story of Christmas. So let's begin with the fact that Mary and Joseph both came from a town called Nazareth. Nazareth was about 70 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And in Jesus' day, it was a town that was remarkably unremarkable. Dr. David Jeremiah wrote this, Nazareth was much like any number of other villages on the Galilean plain, and the word plain was actually a pretty good word to describe the town. Now, when I think of the plainness that they talk about when referring to Mary and Joseph's hometown, I can't help but think of my dad's hometown and get this, Hazard, Kentucky. <laughs> it was a coal mining town. The people that lived there were, were very, very poor. I remember as a child when we would go down there in the summers to visit um, that the homes looked like shacks. Uh, there wasn't much rhyme or reason to the town and the way that it was laid out. It did have a main street and a post office and stores, but let me tell you, it was as basic as it could possibly get. Nothing much happened in Hazard. The men worked in the coal mines and, and the women raised the children. But one thing that I do remember is how respectful the people were there. When my gr grandmother died, we were in the funeral procession heading toward the cemetery and we went through the center of town and I saw just how respectful those people were. As we drove by, everybody stopped what they were doing and they stood still. The men would take off their hats and they would place it on their heart 
until every car from that funeral procession went by. Now, I don't know what happens much here in Red Bluff, but when we lived in Phoenix and the funeral processions would go by, it would have two motorcycles leading the way, a police car or a car with a bubble on it. They would stop in the intersections, and it was like the Indy 500. People would drive by, blow by those things, no respect whatsoever for what was going on. And so for this to happen was literally a life-changing event for me, and I realized how respectful these people were no matter what their condition in life was, and it really made a great impression upon me. But you know, as nice as that was, no one boasted about being from Hazard, Kentucky. And the same thing literally was true about Nazareth. Like Hazard, Kentucky, basically it was a place where the men went about their work and the women attended to their households. It was a typical small town that few citizens called home, and the Jews were especially hesitant to call it home because the Romans kept a military garrison close by. This meant that, that Nazareth was not just plain, but it was considered unclean by the Hebrews. And this is uh, completely understandable because of the kind of carousing that went on whenever payday for those soldiers rolled around. I'm certain that the mothers would gather up their children, especially their young daughters, and bolt down their doors. Because when payday came around, drunken Roman soldiers would come stumbling into town. In fact, this aspect of life in Nazareth gave birth to a very common statement that was made whenever someone mentioned this town. We actually find it in the scriptures in John chapter 1, verses 46, where Nathaniel hears about the Messiah's hometown, and he says sarcastically, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Another important part about the setting of, uh, of this text is the fact that Mary and Joseph were betrothed. Betrothal was our equivalent to being engaged today, and yet it is nothing at all like being engaged today in the 21st century because romance and courtship didn't play much of a role in those ancient times, since most marriages were arranged by the parents of the couple. In Joseph and Mary's case, here's probably what happened. One day Joseph went to his parents and said that he wanted to marry a girl in the village by the name of Mary. She was probably very young, Perhaps she was as young as 13 or 14 years of age, as was the custom in that day. Joseph would have been older, probably more around the age of 20 to 25 years of age. So his parents discussed it among themselves before giving him an answer while carefully appraising Mary's ancestry and her family and her family's resources. Finally, the fathers would agree to meet together and they would agree to a marriage contract between their children. And when they did that, Joseph was brought before Mary and her parents uttered a formal benediction over them while they uh, tasted a cup of wine together. After this, they were considered officially betrothed. Now, after the betrothal, a young girl like Mary was no longer considered a child there would be no more playing with the other children in the village. Those days were over. In that culture, betrothal was literally an abrupt leap into adulthood. 
In fact, this first stage of the marriage process is called the caduceus, and it is far more binding than any of our modern day forms of engagement could ever possibly be. Only a divorce could break the betrothal in Mary's day. And even though they were not yet officially married, had Joseph died during that time, Mary would have been considered his legal widow. And if either Joseph or Mary had been unfaithful to each other, that act would have been deemed or considered as adultery. And, and this is something that under the old Mosaic law in the Jewish culture was punishable by death. Now this betrothal period, the Kedushin, lasted one year. And during these months, the bride lived with either uh, her parents or parents of her friends. However, her property, now belong to her future husband. Also during this year-long engagement time, the families worked out a dowry. They would also search the temple records in Jerusalem. Why would they do that? Because it would have been very possible in a country as small as, as Israel for near relatives to marry without really even knowing it. So they had to find out people's backgrounds. Now this year of the Kedushin was also a time for the future bride and her groom to, to grow in their love. It was also a time for them to dream about their, their future life together. Perhaps Joseph imagined taking Mary on a tour of the house that he was building for them to live in, or maybe they would sit down and talk about how many children it was that they, they wanted to have. But whatever went on during that time of the Kedushin, at the end of the year, the marriage was completed and the couple lived as husband and wife. The final step of the marriage process the act was the actual wedding ceremony, which is what they call the huppah. And it was more like our modern day weddings, only it was a much bigger celebration than anything that we put on in our day and age. The truth is that the huppah often lasted for seven entire days, and it involved bringing in the community. A great example of this, if you recall, Jesus' first miracle was turning the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. And if that wedding celebration had in fact lasted for seven days, you can clearly see why Jesus had to perform that miracle. So with all this in mind, just kind of a background to help you with where we're going in this story, let's go back to our question for the morning. Why did Jesus come to the people he did? Why these two residents of Nazareth? Why did he pick Mary and her betrothal, her betrothed, excuse me, Joseph? I mean, this was certainly not a random selection. God definitely chose these two, but why them? Well, there are some obvious reasons. First, they were both humble peasants. And this completely falls in line with the prophecy of the humble nature of the Messiah's coming. But they were both basically good people. They were people that had the kind of values that you tend to get by living in a small town. For example, Joseph was stable. He was a reliable man. He was a hardworking man. But that would have been true for almost uh, every peasant that lived in that town at that time. They would have had those same kind of qualities that had, had been uh, just instilled in them through their lifetime. So, but I think that Mary and Joseph stood out because they had three other vital characteristics 
These were characteristics that led God to choose them for this crucial role that they played in the nativity story. First, Mary and Joseph, this is my first point, Mary and Joseph were people who listened to God. They listened. They they were receptive to, to God's leading and open to his direction, even when most were not. Mary and Joseph sincerely loved the Lord and they worshiped him with all their heart and mind and soul and spirit and strength. And this characteristic, folks, made them rare in the, among the Jews of that day. You see, back then, Israel was made up of people who had a wide variety of, of theological and political viewpoints, and each one was out of step with, with God's righteous plan. First, you had the Sadducees. These were liberals who did not believe in angels. They denied uh, the the supernatural and bodily resurrection of the dead. In fact, they didn't believe in an afterlife at all. There were also the Pharisees. They were legalists who believed in tradition and ceremonies and good works were all a means to salvation. Then you had the nationalists. These zealots were fanatically intent on overthrowing the Roman control and regaining independence for the nation of Israel. And finally, there were the separatists. They were called the Essens. They meticulously followed the law of Moses and they withdrew completely from their culture, living in communities kind of off the grid, if you will, out in the desert. Well, all of these unscriptural views had combined to form a nation that as a whole was far from God. But as always, there was a remnant, a small section of people who went against the flow and who looked forward to the prophesied coming of the Messiah. It was a small group of Jews who sincerely sought the Lord. They believed in his promises and and, and it made them receptive to God's leading. And Mary and Joseph were a part of that remnant. This is what the gospel writers were trying to get at when they said that Joseph was righteous. And we see the same uncommon quality in Mary in Luke 1, 46 through 49, when Mary said this, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So one reason that Mary and Joseph were chosen to play this crucial role in the nativity story is simple. Because unlike so many of their peers, God knew that they would be receptive to the angel Gabriel's visit. And of course, the scriptures tell us that they were. And this receptivity and this openness is why Mary didn't pass off Gabriel's visit as some kind of a, of a bad dream or some kind of an illusion. It's why Joseph didn't ignore his God-given dream, thinking that it was nothing more than a nightmare brought on by something he had eaten that evening. No, they were both open. They were both receptive to God and his coming kingdom was very important to them. So they lived as the words of Samuel prayed, speak, Lord, 
for thy servant is listening. That's how I view them. They were ready, willing, and able to listen to what God had to say and act on what he said. There's a story told of a Native American and his friend who were in New York City for a visit. They were walking uh, near Times Square in Manhattan during the, the, the noontime lunch rush and the streets were filled with people. Cars were honking their horns. Tires were squealing, going around corners. You could hear sirens everywhere. The sound of the city was literally deafening. And if you've ever been down there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Suddenly the Native American said, he stopped, he said, I hear a cricket. And his friend said, you must be crazy. You couldn't possibly hear a cricket if you wanted to above all this noise. He said, no, I'm sure of it. And he said, I I hear a cricket. And his friend said, that's crazy, man. And the the Native American listened carefully for a moment. And he walks over across the street to a big concrete planter where some shrubs were growing. And he looks underneath the bushes. and, And sure enough, he locates a small cricket. His friend was literally amazed. He said, that's incredible. You have superhuman ears or something? He said, no, listen, my ears are no different than your ears are. It all depends on what you're listening for. And, uh, but his friend said, but, but that, that can't be. He said, he said, you could never hear a cricket through all of this noise. And the man replied again, he said, sure. I I, I can, I could, I will. It just depends on what is really, really important to you. You hear what you're listening for. He said, let me prove it to you. So he reaches in his pocket. He pulls out a, a, a handful of coins that were in there and he drops them on the sidewalk. And then with all that noise that is going on in that crowded city street, they, they noticed every head within 20 feet looking to see if those were their coins. The whole crowd is looking because they hear money. And he said, there's my point. You hear what you were listening for. So I want to ask you this morning, what's important to you this Christmas? What is it that you are listening for? Many times we don't hear God's voice, especially at Christmas, because we are tuned into so many other things, so many less important things. We've got our mind wrapped around. Listen, if like Mary and Joseph, you long to be a part of God's work, if if you are seeking him, let me tell you something, you will find him. You'll hear him when he speaks and nothing is more important to you than what God has to say. Do you remember Jesus' warning in Matthew chapter 13 in verses 15 through 16, it says, he says, for this people's heart have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. Well, which which camp do you find yourself in? How good are your spiritual eyes and your spiritual ears? Do you spend enough time talking to God and and meditating on his word so that you can in fact recognize his still small voice? Do you even hear him when you're walking through noisy crowds like like we're always in in this world in which we live? Well, Mary and Joseph did. And their receptivity to God is the one thing that made God choose them for their part in his redemptive plan. 
And this leads me to, to mention the second answer to this week's question of why Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph not only listened, but they also believed. And they trusted God even when the instructions that he had presented them made absolutely no sense. And this is indeed a very important quality for any of us who are following God to, to, to have. Because what God told them through the angel Gabriel was impossible news on so many levels when you think about it. I mean, think about it from Mary's perspective. She knew she was a virgin, so how in the world could she give birth? And even if this miraculous conception were possible, you have to know that it would need incredible hardship for her. So even though she believed God, no one else was believing God. No one else believed her story. And because of that, she, she may have even faced stoning if, the, if a mosaic legalist caught wind of this news and enforced the religious laws of her culture. And speaking of legal, the law gave Joseph, Joseph the right to divorce her. And even if he didn't, her parents and, and friends would have rejected her. I mean, if she agreed to this, at the very least, her reputation would be shot because she would now be branded as a loose woman. And though some people wear that, that label proud in our day, that wasn't the case in Mary's culture. It was a very terrible label for anyone to have to wear. And by the way, the gospel record makes clear that that is the label that in fact was subjected to her during this time. Then I want you to think about this from Joseph's perspective. Would you believe Mary's explanation if you were in his shoes? Would you believe her claim to be a virgin? I mean, you might be more likely to believe that some drunken soldier from the nearby military garrison played a role in this. But here's the truth, folks. The virgin birth even today is something that the majority of people refuse to accept. So you could understand why they didn't believe it in her day. Gabriel's reminder of Isaiah's prophecy, his statement that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, well, even though it was a well-known prophecy, it made no human sense and still doesn't to this day. And by accepting it, this meant that Mary and Joseph would have to trust God for this thing that they couldn't even understand. And moving from trust to the point of actually believing God would be very hard on both of them. But the Bible tells us that they did both. They heard the angel's message and they responded by trusting God, even when it was hard, even when it made no human sense to do so. Let me stop and ask you something. Is there something difficult God has ever asked you to do? Something that either today or then made no earthly sense to you? Something that would cost you popularity or comfort or money? Perhaps God might be saying to you, I need you to take a stand. I need you to organize a campaign to defend the lives of the unborn in the state of California. I want you to raise awareness. I want you to raise support. I want you to raise money to file lawsuits against the state questioning the legality of the use of tax revenues to pay for abortion. He may be saying to you, 
I need you to forgive someone. It doesn't matter who hurt who first. What matters is that you go and that you build that bridge and you make things right. Perhaps maybe you've heard God's still small voice saying, I need you to evangelize a new family down the street. They don't know anybody. They just moved in. Go and meet them. Or maybe he's saying to you, I need you to make a personal sacrifice. There's a single mom or there's a family that has nothing this Christmas and they need help. Remember that Christmas bonus you just got? My point is that God is always calling us to join him in his work. Many times at a minimum, those calls are inconvenient. And other times, they just don't make a lot of sense to us. But we must understand something. Obedience requires us to leave our comfort zones. It means that that we have to trust God. And we have to quit trusting in self and quit trusting in circumstances around us. So again, let me ask, is God asking you to do something that doesn't add up? Something that you cannot do in your own strength. If so, then I challenge you to be like Mary and Joseph. Trust God even when you don't understand. The results will literally blow you away. And this leads me to the third characteristic that made these two members of the nativity unique. They not only listened and trusted, but number three, Mary and Joseph obeyed even when it was incredibly difficult to do so. When Gabriel explained God's improbable plan Listen to Mary's response in Luke chapter 1, verse 38. She said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. In other words, there's no other way to say it. I obey. I receive what you've told me, God, and now I'm going to obey. And as far as Joseph goes, he didn't understand everything, but he did understand one thing, that God could be trusted. And so he obeyed as well. Matthew 124 says he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Author Max Lucado writes this about Joseph. He had to take cold showers for nine months so the baby could be born of a virgin. He had to push away the sheep and clear out the cow patties so his wife could have a place to give birth. He became a fugitive of the law. He spent two years trying to understand Egyptian after they had to flee Bethlehem to avoid Herod's murderous troops. But still, Joseph obeyed. It wasn't easy for either one of them. But then I want you to just look at the results of their obedience. The Messiah was raised in their home. How many people other than those two will ever have opportunity to say that? They were among the first to experience Emmanuel, God with us, and he was right there with them. Think of the blessing that came from their childlike trust. Think of the amazing things that they experienced over the years simply because they obeyed God. Listen, my church family, you know the kind of people that God uses to do amazing things, things like ministering to to women and girls who are involved in unwanted pregnancies, things like teaching biblical truth to our children, 
Things like giving resources and encouragement to missionaries who share the love of the one true Christ with with children in Muslim countries. Things like ministering to people who are trapped in an addiction of some kind or a stronghold that they can't seem to break free from. Offering food to the homeless or those who are struggling just to buy food. Things like helping children here in Red Bluff understand how much God loves them at a weekly school club that they have the opportunity to attend. Things like building relationships with kids and and families through outreaches in our community uh, and allowing them to join in with us. Things like ministering through softball and volleyball and basketball leagues in Red Bluff. Things like serving at the community Christmas. Christmas concert where beautiful music is presented and the story of Christ is to those in our community. Do you know what kind of people God uses to do those wonderful things and more? God uses willing people. God uses obedient people. And that's what he wants from us today. I'd like to ask the worship team to come forward as we start to close this down. And while they're coming here, let me ask you something. Have you ever been called to be a Joseph or a Mary? Has God ever asked you to go out on a limb and trust him in doing something that didn't or doesn't make any sense to you? Has God asked you to obey him in a task that you know is gonna be difficult for you to pull off. You know, at the beginning of this message, I said that you really only need three people to tell the nativity story. You need Jesus, you need Joseph, and you need Mary. But under further consideration, I have come to the conclusion that that is not correct. Because in order and if the nativity story is to be proclaimed, It requires you and me as well. For some unexplainable reason, God has entrusted us, of all people, he's entrusted us with the task of sharing the story of Christmas, the gospel message to a lost and dying world beginning right here in the community of Red Bluff, California. The nativity story requires obedient Christ followers like you and me. So are you willing to do your part? Are you listening? Are you trusting? More importantly, are you obeying? I believe that the closer we get to Christ's return, the more and more we are gonna be called upon to do his work and to do his will within our own little spheres of influence. Those who we know, those who we, who we do life with, throughout this community. You see, we are God's A plan, folks. There is no B plan. We are the plan. And uh, there's no backup. So how tragic it is when we fail to respond to, to his voice and his leading. There is so much that rides on our personal obedience to the things that God is asking us to do. Because when we fail to be obedient, people suffer and people stay lost when they need to find Jesus. So as we look ahead to this new year that is fast approaching, I believe it's very appropriate for all of us to ask ourselves, what am I doing for God? 
Am I making any kind of a difference? Am I representing Christ well? Am I being obedient? Am I even listening to God's still small voice so that I can be obedient? Well, if you're listening, but then you never obey, you're just cheating the people around you. But more importantly, you're cheating yourself because of the joy that comes from fulfilling a mission that God gives you. You're missing out on the unexplainable blessings that can only come through your obedience to the voice of God. You know, Pastor Anthony said something last week during the greedy time that was so true. He reminded us that Christians can get so comfortable with the Christmas story and, and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that literally sometimes the luster wears off for us. It shouldn't be, but it happens. We just, we just, we've heard it so many times. We, yes, we believe it. Yes, we've experienced it. And yes, we live it. But we assume someone else is going to get the job done in sharing that good news that we've experienced with other people. And that's sad, especially when we reflect on what Christ has done for us personally. And I believe that that is why Jesus commanded us to remember. He said, never ever forget what I accomplished on your behalf on that Roman cross. And so this morning, we're gonna take communion together and we're gonna follow Christ's command and we're going to remember. So I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward and we will pass out the communion emblems. As we celebrate uh, this Christmas together, we can't fully do so by just remembering Christ's birth and the life that Jesus lived on this earth and the ministry of Jesus Christ. But we must also remember the sacrifice that he made on that cross and the gift of salvation that is a result of that. It's a gift that is, that is priceless. It's the gift that, that we live for. And we are commanded, as I said earlier, to never forget this moment, to never forget what Christ did by offering us eternal life in God's presence when, when our time on this earth is done. That's the purpose of communion. And so we are going to remember as a congregation today. But before we participate in communion, the Bible gives us clear instruction about how to about, how go about doing this. The instruction, with the instruction comes a warning. It's in 1 Corinthians 11. Verses 27 through 28, it says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This scripture tells us not to participate in communion in an unworthy manner. It means that if anybody does so without recognizing Jesus, he brings judgment upon himself and is literally guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. But the scripture goes on to say, let a man examine himself. That means to look deep into our hearts and, and to see if there is anything 
that is wrong, something that anything that needs to be corrected. Is there unconfessed sin in your life? Then during our time of prayer, you need to confess that. Have you turned away from God? Have you completely blocked him out of your life? Are, are you harboring unforgiveness towards another individual? Then you need to make good on that relationship because you, you need to take the time to reconcile that with God so that we can all participate in this in a worthy, in a worthy manner. We're gonna have a time of quiet prayer before we take communion. And all you're gonna hear is the music playing softly behind me. If you are someone here today and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can do so right now. You can receive the salvation that I'm talking about. The Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So you simply need to pray a prayer telling Jesus that you believe he is the son of God, the only way to God the Father. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Ask him to be the Lord of your life, not just this Christmas, but every day. The Bible says that if you confess your sin, he is faithful to forgive you, and he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. If all of us would humble ourselves and reach out to God in prayer during this time, lay it all at his feet today, then we can all participate in communion in a worthy way and not eat or drink judgment upon ourselves, as the scripture says. During this time of prayer and meditation, I want everyone in this place to pray to God in your own way and in your own words. Let's bow our head for a time of silent prayer. Father, you have heard our words. More importantly, you've read our hearts. Thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sin. We thank you for the gift of salvation and the promise of spending eternity in the presence of God. Thank you, Father, for your grace, for your forgiveness, and for your mercy. We ask that you bless these emblems we are about to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested and, and later crucified, he had one final meal with his disciples and he had, take, he had took the bread and he, after he broke it, he gave thanks to the Lord Breaking the bread was representative of his body that would soon be broken. He gives a piece of the bread to each one of his disciples and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Went on to say, whenever you do this, do so in remembrance, remembrance of me. So as you eat the bread today, I want you to be reminded of the bruised and the battered body of our Lord and Savior that was sacrificed for you and that by your stripes, you are healed. You may eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup. The cup represented his blood that was soon to be spilled. He told them, this cup is now the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, he said, do this in remembrance of me. So as you drink this juice, I want you to be reminded of the precious blood of the lamb that poured out of Jesus' body for you 
for the forgiveness of your sin. You may drink the juice. Would you please stand with us as we sing? Pentecostal Church, what you just experienced was a message in tongues, followed by an interpretation. Bible says that if there is tongues in a public service like this, there should always be an interpretation. If we just heard the tongues portion, it would make no sense to us, but we hear the interpretation and it makes complete sense. And it always is amazing how whenever this occurs in our service, it completely falls in line with everything that we have just discussed. I don't know if you heard the interpretation, but God said that I will give you whatever you need to do whatever I ask you to do. Trust him. So as we talk about 
this scary thing that Mary and Joseph did and perhaps some of these scary things that he may be asking you to do that don't seem to measure up in your human mind. They make a lot of sense to God. And if you but just trust him, you will see results that you could never have imagined. Let's pray over this service as we close it. Father, thank you for this day that you've given us to gather together and to worship you and to remember the birth of our Savior. What a special time of year this is, Father, and I pray that we would not get so caught up in the activities and the events that we quit listening to what you're saying to us, but that when you speak to us, Lord, we would respond, and we would respond boldly and enthusiastically, knowing that you will take care of every aspect of what it is you've called us to do. It doesn't mean that it won't be challenging sometimes. It doesn't mean that it won't even be awkward at times, but God, you have asked us and we will respond. So open our hearts to what it is that you've called us to do and let us boldly walk into those situations that you call us into. And Father, I pray for my church family today as we go our separate ways. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would go with us, guiding and directing our steps, the places we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have, let those conversations be designed to build people up and not tear them down. Father, let us walk as bright lights in a dark world. And that light is your love that is represented in us that comes shining through. Father, I pray, as I always do, that this week you would provide each one of us with a God encounter, that we would encounter someone, maybe somebody we know, someone who might be a complete stranger but they will say, what is it about you that's different? You have joy, you have, you have this peace about you, and you open that door, Father, let us walk through it and share your goodness with them. Invite them to church, lead them to Christ. Father, just use us in whatever way you see fit. Let us be open to those moments and let us not be afraid to move forward in them. And God, I also ask between now and the time we gather together again that you would keep us safe from sickness and illness, Keep us safe from any accidents that may befall us. Anything that would prevent us from coming together as a church family and worshiping you in spirit and in truth. And so, Father, as we go our separate way, I pray that my church family would go in your love and express that love to everyone that they come into contact with. Thank you for your presence, Holy Spirit. Thank you for speaking to us through a message. Uh, written by man through your written word and a message written through your spirit. We thank you and we give our lives to you. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for being here today.